Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. You're very kind. Thanks, guys, so much. Well, here we go. And uh, so six months ago, I had this uh, dream. And in the dream, uh, the Lord uh, told me to not preach or to teach for six months um, because he was going to teach me how to repent. Um, it wasn't what I was expecting. And for those who are not familiar with that word, it means to change, to turn around, particularly regarding sin, uh, to turn from, from sin. And so it wasn't, it was a bit of a shock, to be honest. But um, the team here and I prayed about it. And also Catalyst, which is the network of churches that I serve and help to lead, uh, the team there, we prayed together. And uh, I think the conclusion after quite a lot of prayer was we think this might be God. So we weren't 100%, and sometimes you've just got to make a decision based on not 100%. We weren't 100%, but I was pretty sure it was the Lord, and um, Caroline uh, gave me a word of encouragement, which is, uh, don't second-guess this one, Simon. You need to do it. So um, that was encouraging as well, and that was kind of the final push I needed to do it, because there was obviously some sacrifice involved in it for everybody. Um, and uh, it was just great. So we made the decision to do it, and then it was amazing. I just love the way the Lord works, because that Sunday when I announced it here, in the evening, John Brown, who's um, part of our family here, came up to me and gave me just this knockout prophetic word, basically saying that um, it, this journey of repentance for me was going to be like climbing the, uh, the Eiger. The Eiger is a mountain in the Swiss Alps. And uh, climbing the Eiger, and I was going to do it solo, but then others would follow. And um, uh, he had no idea that that summer was the first time I'd ever seen the Eiger for real. So I'd sat on Lake uh, Thun. At the end of the lake is the Eiger, Jungfrau, all the Swiss Alps. And you're kind of going to see numbers of the Swiss Alps there. And uh, I'd never seen it before. In, you know, I'd seen pictures. I'd never seen it for real. And I'd spent the afternoon looking at the Eiger. He had no idea about that. Just love the way the Lord does that. And uh, then similarly, this Sunday, I didn't put together the preaching road. I didn't know when I was speaking or exactly or uh, what I was going to speak on. And Phil put it together. And it's on Acts 9 which is one of the key pas passages that I've been looking at and reflecting and meditating on over this time. So again, no, Phil didn't know that and had no way of knowing that. And they just love Jesus. So good, isn't he? So here we are. And um, first of all, I just want to thank the team here. I had to cancel 29 speaking appointments, which uh, many of them have been covered by the team here. So just want to thank them for stepping up. You guys have done amazing. Can we just thank those guys for that? It's been a bit of a stretch, and I just want to thank you guys as a church for responding in faith, for the cards, for the emails, for the prayers you prayed for me. Um, you know, I've always wanted to be the type of guy who hears what God says and does it. You know, hear and obey. To me, that's the summary of the Christian life. To the best of our ability, we hear and obey. We don't do it perfectly, uh, but we do it the best of our ability, hear and obey. And, uh, but you know, as a leader, you need a certain context to be able to do that. You can't just do that anyway. You need a people who respond to that in faith. So I just want to thank you guys for your response to what is, I agree, a little bit odd, um, but you've responded so well to it. And uh, I've obviously had some amusing looks, as I've told people over the, over the last six months, what I'm doing. And uh, some people just immediately look guilty. You know, you mentioned the word repentance, they just look guilty as if God's going to give me some special ability to see into your soul. Uh, and he has. So I would just avoid eye contact if I were you. Just look at the floor when you're around me, otherwise you never know what I might know. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, some people look disapproving. Simon, what have you been up to? You naughty boy, six months on the bench. What's, what have you been up to? So, and when someone does that, you, you feel guilty immediately, even if you're not, and you try to protest, and the more you do, the more guilty you look. So I had to avoid that. Some people just look sorry for, for me, you know, repentance. Oh, nasty. Is there like a cream for that you can use, or 
Whew, I'm not sure what that is, but it sounds nasty. Uh, but most people just had a little bit scratch their heads, you know. Preacher doesn't preach like a plumber who doesn't plumb, you know. It's like uh, working in Krispy Kremes allergic to donuts. You know, it just doesn't quite work, does it? But the reality is God's had me on this uh, journey for a particular reason. And six months really praying and thinking about this theme of repentance, about change. And I've looked and studied and read and prayed lots about, okay, not only how do I change, but how do we change? How do we really, are we, how do we get transformed in the way that God has promised us? And, and also then bigger, how does society change? How do people change society? What does that look like? And just read and uh, just been so inspired over the last six months with what uh, is going on around the world as people get to understand that they are, they are agents of change. And um, loads of stories. One, I'll just give you one illustration. They'll all come out, I'm sure. But one guy, a guy called Jerry Sternin, who went to Vietnam and he went with Save the Children. And his role there was to help with malnourishment, in, in, in particularly in children in um, uh, uh, Vietnam. And to be honest, he had a bit of a frosty reception. Uh, the kind of officials that greeted him were not kind of keen for him to be in their area. Uh, it looked like a kind of shame thing that, that, that he would be there, you know, kind of a foreigner coming in. And, and one of them said to him, you better make a difference in six months. So that was kind of his greeting at his welcome party. And he was like, oh. you know, what? You know, the need obviously is massive. He had a very small team uh, of ladies, local Vietnamese ladies who were helping him. So he thought, okay, what the I've got to find out what the problem is. So he sent them out into the villages and he said, basically, weigh every child get the heights, the stats, let's see what we're working with. And they came back and they had this, um, all this information, all this data, and uh, clearly the issue was massive. The malnourishment was huge. And he said to them, well, are there any, are there any bright spots? Are there any, any kids who aren't malnourished? And they said, yes, there's quite a number. And he said, well, go out again and find out their stories. What are those parents doing differently? And so they went out and they interviewed them all. And when they assessed all of that, they realized that once they got rid of the kind of um, uh, anomalies, like you know, a rich uncle who lived in the city who sent money or relatives over the seas, or whatever, once they got rid of that, some mothers, even in the midst of great poverty, had worked out that if they changed a few things, they could help their kids. So the traditional kind of feeding, um, uh, a traditional plan was that kids would eat with their parents two meals a day, um, and uh, that, that they would kind of, uh, they'd feed themselves. And what they realized is that mothers with kids who weren't malnourished, actually they gave them four meals a day. Same amount of food, but smaller portions, because that's actually helped the kids to digest it better. That they actually fed the kids themselves rather than letting the kids kind of feed and potentially wasting some of the food. But they discovered that in the, the rice fields there were small shrimps and crabs and uh, there were things that, the, that they, and uh, little green shoots that they could put in with the rice and that just these small few changes meant that there was a number of kids who were not malnourished even though they had the same resources as everything else. Once he discovered this, he thought, this is brilliant. This is not an American solution imported. This is local people overcoming for themselves this, this hardship. And so what he did was set up an education program in one village and then another. And mums would come in and they would teach each other how to help their kids in these circumstances. Well, at the end of six months, they surveyed the area again, and 65% of the kids were now on the way out of malnourishment. They'd increased in weight and health, and it became then a national program across Vietnam, a Vietnamese solution that helped to change their world. I just love that story. I've read so many. Yeah, you only just, only just, just I love hearing about that kind of thing. So, and one of the things I've just reflected on is as I've been doing this six months, is why, Lord? Why have you got me doing this? And I think what I've realized is that God wants a mouthpiece on the earth. 
He wants a people who can declare and call for change. Change is needed, and he wants a people who can call for change. In the micro, in the individual lives, but also on a national and international level, God has designed the church to be a prophetic voice that calls for change. But the reality is this. We can't call for change unless we've been through the process ourselves. We can't be that mouthpiece. We can't carry the same voice and authority that the Lord wants us to carry if we haven't been through it ourselves. And I don't believe anyone listening to this or here this morning is uh, just living life for an end goal of being happy and entertained. You might have bought into that, but that's not what you were made for. Deep down, you know that won't satisfy you. Deep down, you know the imprint of the divine is on you. You were born to make a difference. You were born to change the world. You were born to leave a mark on this planet once you go. That's, that's who you are. But the reality is each one of us has to come to this revelation that before we can change others, we have to change ourselves. How do we change the world? And so I want to look at Acts 19, which is a passage that I've been reflecting and, and meditating on. And uh, I'll tell the story. The words will come up on the screen so you can make sure I'm not making it up. But let me just tell the story. And it's around this guy called Paul. And Paul was uh, one of the early Christians, a follower of Jesus. And he uh, was commissioned to go out and tell people this news that he'd heard. And so he goes on his travels. He comes to this city called Ephesus. And when he gets to the city of Ephesus, it's this massive kind of uh, metropolitan city. He arrives there, he finds a few believers, and he says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they're like, no, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. We don't even heard what you're talking about. And he says, well, what baptism then? You say you're believers, what baptism did you receive? And they said, well, the baptism of John. Now, they're talking about John the Baptist who came right before Jesus. They were baptized by the baptism of John. And he said, oh, well, he said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance from sin. But he pointed to one who was to come, one who was called Jesus. Well, of course, when they heard this message about Jesus, they realized, we've only had half the story. And so then all of them were baptized in the name of Jesus. And Paul laid his hands on them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit instantly. And they spoke in tongues, which is an unlain language like you heard in worship today. And they began to prophesy, declaring the secrets of God with, with authority. Well, Paul took those 12, and, and then he went to the synagogue, which is what he always used to do, to the local kind of Jewish gathering, and began to tell everyone, this is the news. This is God has come with his kingdom. He's here amongst us. Something new is happening. Some of the Jews loved it and believed. Some of them hated it, and they turned against him and began to say all sorts of things about him. And so what happened was he retreated to a place called the Hall of Tyrannus. And he went to the hall of Tyrannus, out of the synagogue, uh, to mix with the Jews and Gentiles. And he began to lecture people. And because Ephesus was such a kind of massive city and people were coming in for trade and, and family and all sorts of things, people would come and hear, who's this guy talking and what's he talking about? And they would come and hear his story and then they would become believers themselves. And they would be baptized, filled with the Spirit, and then go back to their own towns and cities. And so uh, from that, Luke reports that, who's writing the story, he reports that uh, the whole of Asia heard the message of Jesus just from the teaching uh, that Paul was doing across two years. And, and Paul had been known for lots of miraculous signs. God, how did anyone know that he was saying the truth? How did anyone know this wasn't just any 
old story. Well, there were numbers of miracles that happened when Paul preached and taught. And, and, but Luke report, reports in this city, in Ephesus, there were unusual miracles. There were things that had never been seen or heard of before. Even, even handkerchiefs touched Paul and they were taken from him and were laid on sick people and they were healed. Amazing stuff. And, and demons were cast out of people. We haven't got time to talk about demons and all that kind of thing. But there was one interesting story that Luke writes down, which is that some Jewish um, uh, exorcists were going around and were trying to drive demons out of people and, and were saying uh, that the Jesus uh, that, that Paul preaches uh, uh, in the name of Jesus come out. And, and uh, there were seven of these guys, the sons of Sceva, and, and they were sons of a priest, and they were going around doing this. And there was one guy they ran into, uh, and they said, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out. And he's like, and the, the guy said, well, Jesus I know, and, and Paul I've heard of, but who the heck are you? And he rose up and, and beat them so badly, and they ran out with no clothes on. We're not sure how that happened, but... Um, <laughs> doesn't sound good. And this story was heard across the whole of Ephesus, and so much so that great fear came on the city. You can imagine if we'd heard that story here, and great fear came on the city, and the name of Jesus was really exalted. People suddenly were not just using it like some old, any old name. They were suddenly revered the name of Jesus, and they held up his name in high honor. Many of them came to faith in him, and even many of them, and Ephesus was a center of magic and the occult, and many of them took their magic books and brought them kind of into the center in some kind of central area and burned this whole pile of magic books, and so much so that they added up the value, and they reckon it was around two million pounds worth of stuff that was burned, and Jesus' name was honored, and the message began to travel further and wider from this city. How do we change the world? Subtitle, how do you get people to burn their books? Because if you think about it, that's what happens, isn't it? This is a, Ephesus was a center of the occult, of magic. They love this stuff. Like my friend uh, Royden loves Norwich. It's, uh, it's just that kind of obsession. They love this stuff. They love the occult. They love the magic. But within two years of hearing Paul's preaching... There was a total transformation. They're burning. The thing that they once loved, they're now burning. They're not even eBaying it. They're burning it. They're burning it. They don't want anyone else to have this stuff because they're so, so rejected it. That's a transformation right there. How do you change the world or how do you get people to burn their books? And, and there's lots we could say, but I think it starts with this one word, repent. Repent. Paul rocks up and, and he realizes they'd only heard a message, one message, and the message they'd heard was a message of repentance from their sin. And, and you know, they'd only heard that much, but at least they'd responded. They had responded and they had repented. And, and, and there's two concepts we've got to understand when we understand the word repent. The first is sin. And, and the second is the word repent. And, and sin is missing the mark. That's what it means. It means missing God's standard of behavior. Lying, stealing, cheating, sex outside of biblical marriage, greed, hate, lust, pride, hatred, any a number of others. These things mark us as humans and God calls them sin and they stain us. They defile us. They corrupt the, the, the beautiful creation that God has made. My um, brother-in-law just had to put his dog down. Oh. Dog, not many dog lovers in the house. Oh, he meant to say, oh, at that point. To put his dog down, dog was ill, very kind of elderly and lost control of its kind of functions and making a mess everywhere and just, uh, just couldn't, just, there was nothing they, the vet could do, had to put it down. And Eli, my uh, nephew, who's uh, four, I think, his version is, my dog started pooping everywhere, so they killed it. 
which is a four-year-old summary of a quite a sad and tragic story. A dog started pooping, so they killed it. Is that what this is about? <laughs> when God says the wages of sin is death, is that it? We start messing around and God kills us. No, no, it's not like the reality is sin is such a cancer to the soul, such a cancer to the beautiful creation that God made, that the result, the fruit of it, is it just eats us alive until there is just death. Separation. It's a relational break that comes in because of our sin. And it just destroys us. We're like, I guess, embers in a fire. And once that ember goes out of the fire, it soon becomes cold and dead. We're born to be in the fire of God's presence. We're born to be in the fire of His love. We're born to be in His warmth, in His embrace. And if we separate ourselves because of sin, we soon shrivel up and die. So sin is one word, and the second is this word, repent. Two words, one sin, the second is repent. And, and repentance, uh, there's two languages that the Bible's written in, Hebrew and Greek, and the, he, the Greek word for it is uh, metanoia, which means to change your mind. Uh, and you understand that repentance is not an emotional thing, it's a change of mind, it's assessing, you know what, the stuff I used to do, I now consider it wrong. <laughs> I consider it wrong. And the Hebrew word is more of a relational word, the Hebrew word means to, to turn back, to return it's talking about the fact that we stray from God's way and we turn back to His way. When we repent, we were going one way and we turn 180 and go back the other way. That's what it means. And when you put the two together, that's what repentance means. It's a change of mind. It's an assessment of our lives, of the way we were going, and it's saying, I am turning around, I am going back. I'm turning anew. The world says there is no right and wrong. You do what you like. Do what pleases you. If that's good for you, that's right. The Bible says very differently. It says there is a very real thing as right and wrong. And the one who gets to decide is not you or I. It's God. <laughs> you know, in my house, my rules go. Caroline and I, we set the rules in our house. Those are the rules that go. In God's house, His world, His rules go. <laughs> not for our restriction, but for our life. <laughs> to give us a, a safe place to enjoy life. That's why he sets these things up, so that we don't destroy ourselves or each other. And many, many people want to change the world, but the reality is this, as the great philosopher Michael Jackson once said, <laughs> if you want to make the world a better place, you've got to look at yourself and make the change. <laughs> You're meant to join in at that point with the ooh on the end. You kind of left me... Hanging, what's happened to you guys in the last six months? You should have known that was coming. If I, before I can call others to change, I've got to get to this place where I change myself. I've got to respond. Repentance first is personal. And this story ends with a mass repentance, a whole city transformed. But it starts with a few believers. And if you trace the story back, it actually starts with Paul himself. He himself responded to the same message and repented. Repentance is personal. And then secondly, repentance leads to the embrace. And this is what so many miss. Let's go back to our story. What baptism did you experience, he said, and they replied, the baptism of John. Paul said John's baptism called for repentance from sin, but John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. As soon as they heard, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. When Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. What's the point? These men had, had repented, but they hadn't received all that they could. They'd only had half the story. They'd, they'd done the hard work, if you like, turning around, but they'd not realized that when we turn back to God, He runs to us. He runs to us. 
That's good news, by the way. He runs to us. And there's this story that Jesus tells, the story of the prodigal son. And, and the son is, uh, is away from his father. He sins against his father. He basically says, I wish you were dead. And he ends up in losing all his money. He ends up feeding pigs in squalor. And in that place, he comes to his senses. That's the repentance, metanoia, change of mind. He comes to his senses. He realizes, I have sinned against heaven and against my father. I'm going to go back to my father. And I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son, but please let me be one of your servants because I'll be better off than I am in this, this pig, pigsty. And he says he go, gets up, he goes back to his father in his filthy, stinking clothes. He gets there, but before he gets there, his father sees him a long way off and he runs to him and he embraces him and he kisses him. We just make a little turn and the father is looking for us and he runs to us. And many, even many Christians have heard the first half repent, but they never heard the second half. Repentance must end in the embrace. Sin is about a broken relationship, not just a tick box. It's about a severing of relationship. So when we turn, he runs to us and says, now, be filled with the Holy Spirit. The greatest words ever spoken, ever spoken by anyone ever were spoken in about 600 BC. And so many people have never heard them. Ezekiel, the great prophet, said this, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is amazing. God himself will dwell with man and be in our hearts. No longer do you need a temple made of stone because God himself is coming. And we turn and he runs to us and he puts his arms around us in our filthy clothes and he embraces us and he kisses us. You know what I say to my kids when they mess up and they come back to me is, you know, there's nothing you can do to stop me loving you. And that's what God says to you and I. When we turn back to him, he runs to us. And when Ezekiel said these words, if you just said, oh, pick me, pick me like Donkey and Shrek, pick me, I'll be the one. Ezekiel said, no, 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 wait. You've got to wait. But when Jesus came, he said, now receive the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you see, up until that point, there was a wait, there was a delay, 600 years. But then when Jesus came, we live in the day where there's no delay, <laughs> where we can repent and receive the power of the Spirit in our lives. Have you turned around? Then you should receive the Spirit. And I remember when it happened to me, a life-transforming moment. And, I, and last Sunday, it happened to my friend who came to the front to respond, and he knew it was his day as he repented of his sin, and he turned to Christ, and he received the Holy Spirit, the down payment. And he said, all the heaviness has gone. I feel so light. And he couldn't stop crying and laughing as he encountered something of the living God and was filled. And some here are thinking, but I'm not good enough. When will you ever be good enough? When will you ever be good enough? You will never be good enough. Listen to what the words say again. I will sprinkle clean water on you, God says. I will, I will make you clean. I will cleanse you. Do I have to sort my life out before the Spirit will come? No. Repent. Turn around and then receive. The Spirit will come. The Spirit will come in your life. Is the Spirit for a few special Christians? No. This message is without restriction. Repent and receive the Spirit of God. You know, my son Ethan loves um, drumming and he needed a bit of an upgrade on his drum kit. So we all the family clubbed together and we bought him a, a drum kit for his birthday, a new drum kit. 
And um, I bought it on eBay and paid on PayPal. That's not an advert, by the way. Um, and uh, it was a sec- great price for a second-hand one, but we had to go to Birmingham. And on the way, I was saying to Ethan, you've got to try it out because I've got no clue about Birmingham. I've only seen the photos. You've got to make sure it works before we take it. He said, well, have we got to pay when we get there? I said, no, no, I have already paid for it. We've just got to, got to collect it. I'm not quite sure what to do if it doesn't work. But uh, we've already paid for it. It's already, already ours. And that's the reality for so many of us. That's the reality for these guys. These guys had never understood that Paul meets, they'd never understood that the drum kit was already paid for. (laughs) That actually the price had already been paid for them to receive the Spirit. Jesus had already come. They just had never understood it. But the reality can be for us, even as Christians, you may have heard this message before, but you've you've left half half your drum kit in in Birmingham. (laughs) You went and perhaps you picked up a symbol. You never really understood the fullness of what was bought for you. You never understood all that was paid for for you. Well, I'm telling you, this morning the message is there for each one of us repent turn and receive receive what does it look like to go imagine if Ethan said oh I don't want to go and pick it up well the drum kit would have still been sitting there we would still have owned it but it would be sitting in Birmingham in somebody's lounge and he'd be a bit annoyed reality is repent and receive and this is the third thing repentance must be deep and ongoing you know, some people say, well, no, this repentance thing this is just for people when they first come to Christ. This isn't like an ongoing thing. But actually, I don't believe that or agree with it. In Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Jesus writes to seven churches and five of them he calls to repent, showing us that repentance is an I- initial turning, but then there's a lifelong saying, God, I want to line up. I want this spirit, this heart in me. I want to be like you are. Be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. I want to be transformed from the inside out. And I've seen some breakthroughs, but I want to see the whole thing. I want to take the whole drum kit. I don't just want to have part of it. I don't want to live with part of it. This is what Charles Finney, one of the great revivalists, said. True repentance involves a change of opinion, rejecting the nature of sin, followed by a corresponding change of feeling towards sin. The one who truly repents, sin looks very different to him than it does to the one who's not repented. Instead of looking desirable or fascinating, it looks odious and detestable. He's astonished that he could ever have desired such a thing. Sinners may look at sin and see that it will ruin them because God will punish them, but it still appears in itself desirable. They love it. If it could end in happiness, they would never think of abandoning their sin. But one who truly repents looks at his own conduct as perfectly hateful. He looks back and exclaims, how detestable and worthy of hell my sin was. Is our repentance deep and ongoing? Have we gone to the depths of it? My, my friend Mark Marks was out on the streets um, uh, in Northern Ireland. He loves to go out and pray for the sick. And once, one day he was out on the streets and it was pouring with rain. There was no one really to talk to or pray with. There's no one really out. Apart from this one guy who was smashed out of his face, drunk, sitting on the curb. And so Mark was just chatting to him and uh, got to pray for him. And at the end he thought, you know, I'm going to hug this guy. He's probably never been hugged in his life. And he hugged this guy. And as he hugged this guy, the guy threw up on him, over, down his front and down his back. I mean, just like miserable. And so he's walking home, trudging home, pouring rain, covered in vomit, stinking. And he says, Lord, what on earth was that all about? (laughs) What a miserable afternoon. And the Lord immediately says, I wanted you to smell what sin smells like to me. Have Have we understood how odious sin is? Have we burned our books? Or do we still kind of keep them in the simmering embers? <laughs> Do we go back and stir the embers? Is there stuff that you've dealt with, and, but other stuff you just kind of keep tinkering with? I tell you, I've been on a journey in the last six months as the Lord helped me to look in my heart and see where are the things 
that I've not learned to hate like God hates them? Are there things in your life that you kind of just kind of keep, keep there? You've kind of dealt with them, but really, have you really dealt with them? Have you burned your books? Have you taken them and said, I'm, n- I'm not going, but I see this now. That's one of my prayers. You know, one, one of the things uh, for me that's been a lifelong battle is self-pity. When things go wrong, I can very quickly and easily go into this kind of self-piteous place. I don't know it's wrong, and when I find myself, I repent and kind of turn away. And, uh, but I keep going back there and have done for decades. But what I've begun to pray and ask the Lord is, Lord, let me see that self-pity as you see it. Let me see how disgusting it really is, how grim it really is, how selfish and the impact it has on others, my family and others. Let me see it as you see it. And that, that dramatically has begun to be a change in me. I'm not looking at Caroline right now. That dramatically has begun... <laughs> She's nodding, okay. That dramatically has begun to be a change in me as I've begun to see it as God. What is it for you? What area of your life do you feel like, do you know what, I, didn't, I never really chucked that book on the bonfire. I kind of just kept it like a little pet just to go back to when things get tough. Just, just don't look at me right now. Just when things get tough, those areas, what is it for you? Because the Lord wants us to have a voice but we can never have a truly, and the, uh, we can never have a truly wholehearted voice to call a world to change if we haven't really gone through the process ourselves. If we haven't really embraced the cross ourselves and said, you know what, I want to die to this stuff. I want to live a new life. What is it for you? Is it that pride? Is it that greed or laziness or blaming God when things go wrong? You know, you know it's not right, but you just keep on doing it, keep on doing it. Have we burned our books that we never go back? Derek Prince, a uh, famous preacher, once said this, that at least 50% of the problems of professing Christians are down to one fact. They've never truly, deeply repented and made Jesus Lord of their lives. They still think, if I do this, what will it do for me? If I do that, how will it work out for me? When you've really repented, truly repented, you think, if I do this, will it glorify Jesus? If I do that, will it glorify Jesus? We have multitudes of people double-minded. Is your aim to truly please Jesus? It will be when you've repented. What does it look like for us to allow repentance to go deep and ongoing and totally change us, that we become a transformed people with a pure message that says there's no area of my life that's not open to the Holy Spirit. There's no door that's shut. I'm saying, Holy Spirit, don't, no, no, don't, let's not go there. Every area is on the table. What does it look like? And then lastly, repentance must be Spirit-empowered. And some of you are even squirming, thinking, I can't do this. And you know what the truth is? You can't. You cannot do it. You cannot do it. But what does the prophecy say? I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit in you and I will move you. I will move you. God will enable you to do what he is calling you to do. The person you were could not do this, but now you have the spirit of God. If you are a follower of Christ, you can receive and receive afresh the spirit of Christ to enable you to do the very thing that you want to do, but have perhaps given up thinking that you could do. To defeat these areas in your life, to truly repent, to empower us. I want hope to rise in our hearts this morning. This is a message not of, oh gosh, this is a message of hope. That we can be free so that we can carry freedom to other people. That we can carry freedom because we know Christ has set me free. Receive the Spirit. 
And some of you think, oh, but there's so many different areas. That's an old trick of the enemy. Just overwhelm you. Overwhelm with, oh, but this area and this area and this area. That's called condemnation. Don't go there. Because the Holy Spirit, he's kind. And he says, just give me this one area. And it'll be the one you really don't want to give up. There'll be 99 others you'd be quite happy to give up. But he says, just give me, let's just work on this problem. This issue when you keep lying. This issue when you keep doing this. This issue when you, let's give me that problem. Let's work on this together. And you're like, no, no, I'll give you everything else but that. No, 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 I want that one. Because you know what? It's like what I learned as a teenager when my room was like a pigsty and I lived in chaos. One thing I learned was if you look at the whole room, you get overwhelmed. But if you start with your, your desk by the side of your bed and you think, I can be master of that. <laughs> I, I can master that little bit by the side of my bed. If I can master that, and then once you've mastered that and it's clean and you've given it a polish and you've taken off all the coffee cups and everything and it's clean, then suddenly you look at the rest of the thing, I could do that area and I could do that area. And it's exactly how the Holy Spirit works. The enemy wants to just, you know, he want, even now he's wanting to bombard you with all the stuff. You're thinking, oh no, and this, that, and the other, and all this stuff. And that's why you, we are where we are. That's why we get stuck. But the Holy Spirit says, no, no, let me come alongside you. Let's just start on this area. He's kind to us. He's gently, he leads us gently into freedom because he knows once we get mastery in one area, then we can get mastery in another area. And we can say, Lord, there's no, no area of my life that's not open to you. What does it look like for you? You know, repentance is, it's got to be personal. It's, it's got to be personal. We've got to encounter the embrace or it just becomes a, a drudgery We've got to know the embrace of the Father as we turn back to Him. It's got to be Spirit-empowered. And it's got to be deep. And I know these things because I've seen so much victory in my life. You know, if you're to hear my story, and some of you know it, of, you know, addicted to theft and stealing. And I've been totally transformed in that. I see how odious that is now. I'm the guy, you know, when it comes down to tax return and I'm phoning up the income tax people and saying, yes, I've got a report income of £152. And you can hear the guy on the other line thinking, what? Who does this? You, we would never have known. And I'm that guy <laughs> phoning them up, taking half an hour to get through. I'm that guy. Why? Because I've seen what it is. I've seen what theft does to the world. And it starts with me with little insignificant things that seem like nothing and whoever will know. But God knows and I know and it silences my voice. And, and so I'm that guy and lying and I used to lie all the time and now I do occasionally lie. I haven't this morning, you'll be pleased to know, but I do occasionally lie. But as soon as I do, my po- conscience is like, ah, and I have to go back to the person and say, oh, you know, when I said that, it wasn't. And sometimes it's not even outward lying. It's when you leave someone with the impression that you know isn't true but without lying. Anyone ever done that? You know that they think something that's not true, but you didn't actually lie? Oh, that used to be a great feeling. (laughs) Double whammy. Now, oh, the Holy Spirit's like, no, 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 no. You know that what they believe is not the truth. You might not have lied, but you lied. Like, oh, Lord. It's those things, that sensitive. But I've seen freedom in that. And I go back to them and say this, you know, I lied about this. And they're like, why? I don't don't know. (laughs) It just came out of my mouth. It's that stuff. I've seen freedom, which gives me great encouragement that where he has brought me so far, he will bring me home. What is it for you? What area of your bedroom do you need to say? The Holy Spirit is saying, let's start here. You've left this a mess for so long. Let's start here. I'm not literally talking about a bedroom, by the way. Some of you are feeling guilty about that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a picture. What is it that the Lord is saying, start here? And I could give you a list of pride and 
and thinking less of people. And God so dealt with me that me. It just broken my heart for people. I just I never look down on people anymore. I never think, oh, how could they do that or do that? I hear all sorts of awful things and never once. And I used to be so full of pride and self-righteousness. And I, I hear awful things that people have done. I never think, how could they do that? Because do you know what? By the grace of God, that's what I would have done as well. <laughs> it's only by the grace of God I haven't done worse things than I've done. God's dealt with that. What is it for you? What victories can you look back on in the past that you think he's done that, therefore he can do this next thing? What areas have you left? What parts of the drum kit have you left in Birmingham? If you're with me, if you're picking up the end of the preach, you've got no clue what I'm talking about. But what areas of the drum kit have you left back in Birmingham that you need to go and get now and say, that is mine. This area of freedom is mine by the power of the Spirit. I'm having it. What addictions, what thought patterns, what things you need to say. I want to have a voice to change the world. But it starts with me. (laughs) It starts with me. It starts with me. It starts in here. It starts with repentance. And the outworking of this is amazing because we see in Ephesus, we see Paul laying hands on the sick and even handkerchiefs transforming people's lives and, and we see uh, people being set free from the demonic and we see a whole city transformed. But it starts with these two words, repent and receive. If you remember nothing else from this morning, remember that. Repent and receive. Repent and receive. Turn away from your sin and receive the Holy Spirit. Because Ezekiel saw it 600 years early, but now is the day. (laughs) Now is the time when we can have it today and we don't have to wait. What does it look like for you? And there's some, you're not a follower of Jesus. Like my friend last week, you're not a follower of Jesus. And this is your morning to repent for the first time. And there are others, you've been on this journey for a while. But the Lord is coming this morning to give you fresh hope that area where it was off limits, that area you felt shame over, that area God is calling you afresh. Come on, I want you to have a voice, a clear, a, a, a voice that has got confidence to call a world to change. But it's going to start with you.